The reading is taken from Hebrews 2, verses 5 to 18, and it's on page 1212 in the Church Bibles. That's page 1212, starting at verse 5. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking, but there is a place where someone has testified. What is a human being that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor, because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the presence of the congregation, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And he says, here I am, and the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is the word of the Lord. Super. Thank you, Val. Uh, I should have said earlier, if you have got uh, little ones and they just need a little space to wiggle, uh, there is a bit of a, there is some space at the, the back of church there, uh, specifically designed for them where they can play with some toys and things like that. So do feel free uh, to take them there uh, if they would appreciate that. So as we reflect on God's word together, let's, let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we prepare in heart and mind for another Christmas, we don't want this just to be another Christmas. We want to know why you came to us. We want to understand more deeply, not just in our heads, but in our hearts, the reason 
why Christmas is worth celebrating, why you became human. And so we, we pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts. Lord, we pray that you would show us exactly why you came and that you would make us glad even more so. Give us a greater joy in your coming, a greater knowledge of why you came. Amen. Amen. So through uh, the season of Advent, we're, we're asking the question, why did Jesus come? And we're looking at it, and there are lots of different places in the, in the Bible that tells us why Jesus came. Some of those are, are on Jesus' own lips. Some of them are on the lips of some of his friends and followers. And so to, this morning, I want to ask you a question. Do you fear death? Woody Allen once quipped, I'm not afraid of death. I just don't want to be there when it happens. So are you afraid of death. Now, life expectancy in the UK at the moment is 80 years. So in 80 years' time, almost all of us here today, except perhaps uh, a few, like some of the very youngest, like Hallie, will probably be dead. For many of us here, it will be significantly less than that. So I'm, I'm 37 years old at the moment. I turned 38 in January. So perhaps, God willing, I've got about 40 years. Other of us here today might perhaps have 20, some 10. And, and some, we just don't know, well, actually, perhaps this could be the final year. We just don't know. Well, welcome to church. Good morning. It's great that you're with us. Well, why do, I, why do I start that way? Especially on a Sunday when we're celebrating a baptism of, of Hallie and Layla Rose. Well, because we're all afraid of death. And the way we live our lives are conditioned by the fear of death. Often in ways too many for us to count, in ways that we don't even realize but actually, one of the reasons that the Bible says Jesus came was to destroy the power of death. That's what it says in the Bible reading we've just heard. That's the reason Jesus was born in verses 14 and 15. That by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. Why did Jesus come? To destroy the power of death. And by talking about death, I'm aware that we're doing something pretty countercultural because death is for us what Voldemort is in the Harry Potter books, that which must not be named. And so here's what we're going to do this morning as we look at this passage from Hebrews chapter 2 together. We're going to, A, Diagnose the problem. The problem at the heart of the human condition. Then we're going to look at God's prescription for our problem. And then we're going to explore what God's prognosis for us is if we follow his course of treatment. Now, if we go to the doctor, if they're any good, they'll ask us questions to help us 
understand what's going on. Uh, and I want to do the same with us this morning. So the first question is, do you fear death? And by the way, the answer is yes. Even if you don't think you do, I am pretty confident that in the way that you live your life, the answer is yes. And second, I want to ask, how does Jesus' coming overcome our fear of death? And third, we need to know, what would a life free from the fear of death look like? So, diagnosis, prescription, prognosis. That's where we're going. Do you fear death? Well, the author of the letter to the Hebrews says, yes, you do. We all do. In fact, he says that we live the whole of our lives in a state of of slavery to the fear of death. Now, I can imagine that some of you this morning are sat here thinking to yourself, I'm not afraid of death. Hardly ever crosses my mind especially if you're on the younger end of the spectrum, I imagine. But the fear of death takes many forms, many of which we're just not conscious of. So we can be afraid of death even without knowing that we're afraid of death. It's a, it's a silent master who governs our actions without us even realizing it. So most people deal with the fear of death quite simply by denial, We just don't allow ourselves to think about it. We close our eyes, shut our ears, and blank our minds to the reality that one day, each of us in this room is going to die. But occasionally, there's a chink in the armor, and the reality of death intrudes into our tightly sealed boxes that are our lives. Tragedy strikes. Your cat dies. A six-year-old girl at your school dies completely out of the blue. The doctor looks at you in the eyes and says, I'm sorry, it's cancer. But then even at funerals, when we are forced to try and confront the awful reality of death, we can still try to deny it. We, we read poems about how our, our loved one hasn't really died at all. Uh, but they're just kind of next door. Do not stand at my grave and cry, I am not there, I do not die, we say as the coffin's right there in the room. Well, some people just don't even want the coffin in the room, lest it remind them that they're dead. And so that's one way that we approach the fear of death. We just ignore it. We just deny it. But the other approach that many of us take uh, to deal with our fear of death is distraction. We say, I'm not afraid of death. Now, it would be sad because life is the basis for all the good things that make us happy, family, friends, play, food, music, things like that. Death would mean losing all of those things, so it would be sad, but I'm not afraid Now, I had an atheist friend at university who used to rib me for being a Christian, uh, and he used to quote quite a lot of things at me, like Karl Marx saying, religion is the opiate of the people, and say that Christianity was just an escape for reality, for those uh, who were too weak to deal with the world as it really is. 
But then he also used to go out every night, get absolutely smashed on drink and drugs to escape reality. And he even said as much. So perhaps opiates are the opiates of the people. Or perhaps some of you don't believe me still, that's okay. For the most part, our fear of death stays under the radar. Its uh, malevolent influence is subtle, it's skillful, it's sophisticated. So let me suggest a few other ways in which our fear of death manifests itself. So here's a question for you. What is the largest employer in the UK today? The NHS. Thank you. The NHS employs over 1.3 million people. It's the largest employer, not just in the UK, but in Europe. Health spending accounts for £176.2 billion of UK government spending every year. That's about 15% of the total government spending. It's the single biggest ticket item on the government budget year by year. Why do you think it's so big? Because it's our biggest hedge against our biggest fear, death. And add to that our spending on state pensions, 124.3 billion pounds a year. Add to that our defense budget, 32.4 billion pounds a year. And you've got over 300 billion pounds spent by government year after year trying to insulate us from death. Really? We're not afraid of death? We spend 300 billion pounds as a country on it every year. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm grateful for the NHS, very, very grateful, but my point is death is pulling our strings. It's influencing the decisions we make all the time. Why do you think we're so health and safety conscious? Why do you think we have to do risk assessments for everything? Because we're afraid of death. And it's right that we should protect people and look after life. And we we don't want people to get hurt. But we're also living in a delusion if we think that we're going to get out of life alive. We're not. Okay, so some of you might now be thinking, okay, so the fear of death maybe influences big government decisions, but it doesn't influence my life on a day-by-day basis, okay? Well, some of us, the fear of death is very real. When will it come? But with the fear of death also comes many other evils. Hurry. How much time have I got left in this short life? I don't have time to do it all. Greed. I don't have long, so I've got to grab everything I can get while I can get it. Envy. Well, I've only got one shot at life. Look how much better she has it than I do. Injustice. Good people die young. So what does it matter whether I'm good or bad? Materialism. The one who dies with the most toys wins. Superficiality. Well, if I look young, 
I must still be young. Despair. What's the point? Life is full of pain, and then you die. I want to suggest that you and I are controlled by the fear of death day in, day out. It's as normal to us as breathing. So normal, we don't even realize it's happening. Uh, Now, before you say that this is just all religious Christian scaremongering, consider this. In 1973, uh, Ernest Becker wrote a a Pulitzer Prize-winning book called The Denial of Death. He's not a Christian, uh, but in it, he makes exactly the same point as the the author of the letter to Hebrews that we heard just a few moments ago. He says this. He says, the main thesis, the main point that he's trying to make in the book is that the fear of death haunts the human animal like nothing else. It is a mainspring of human activity designed largely to avoid the fatality of death, to overcome it by denying in some way that it is the final destiny for man. Like I said, he's not a Christian writing this. He doesn't have answers, but he does recognize the problem. We live our lives gripped by the fear of death. So, let's move on to the prescription. If the basic problem at the heart of the human condition is that we're all afraid of death, what is the solution? Is there a solution? Well, it all depends on what you think life is all about. If there's no God and we're just a bunch of primates who got lucky in the evolutionary race on a rock in the middle of space that just happens to be perfect for human life, then the solution to death is eat, drink, and be merry. In other words, you do you, do whatever makes you happy. Life is short, enjoy it. If there's no God, then the best thing you or I can do is to keep ourselves entertained with worldly pleasures for as long as we possibly can until death's unwelcome advances become unavoidable. Deny and distract. But what if there is a God? What if, as the Bible says, God created us in his image to reflect him like a mirror and to partner with him in ruling the world as its kings and queens? What if the God who made us is so infinitely precious and holy and worthy of our love that it's perfectly just of him to be angry at our indifference, our mistrust, our rebellion against him. What if, as the, 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 the writer C.S. Lewis, the, who, who famously wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, what if there are no ordinary people because we were all made to live forever? And we will, either in heaven or in hell, for all eternity. What if when we die, we will be called to give an account of our lives before this great, unholy God whom we were meant to reflect and point towards and enjoy and glorify? In short, what if death means meeting our maker? Well, in that case, we'd be completely justified in our fear of death. In fact, we might even be driven to look for religious ways of denying death, trying to rack up enough brownie points to get ourselves into God's good books. So is that what Christianity is all about? 
No. An attempt to get in God's good books is not what Christianity is all about. The good news of Christianity isn't that there is a way to earn God's favor by doing lots and lots of good things. The good news of Christianity is that God himself has destroyed the power of death by dying for us and rising again through his son Jesus. Notice what verse 14 says, if you've got a Bible open. It says, Jesus breaks the power of him who holds the power of death. Jesus. Not you, not me. Jesus. That's the good news. Now, often when people think about judgment, they think that if you uh, do good things, you go to heaven, and if you do bad things, you go to hell. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that it's not sin that damns us to hell. It's unforgiven sin. The devil holds the power of death by uh, tempting us, inciting us to sin, and then lying about its consequences. But the devil has no power to condemn anyone in himself. Uh, The theologian J.D. Greer writes, the only choice that puts a person outside of God's grace is refusing to acknowledge their brokenness and submit to Jesus' lordship. But if the devil's lie that God doesn't really love us and uh, and doesn't really want us to be happy, if that is his weapon and that's nullified, well, death would lose its sting. So how does Jesus' coming overcome our fear of death? Well, Jesus takes the power of death out of the devil's hand by taking the consequences of sin into himself. And we see that in verse 17 of our reading where it says that Jesus makes atonement for the sins of the people. Uh, And it can be helpful to think of that word atonement uh, by breaking it down into three bits. At one meant. Making amends for a wrong. Bringing those who are torn apart back together again. Jesus came to bear the curse of sin for us in our place. He came to remove the wrath of God by bearing it in himself, in his body on the cross. Jesus came to demolish once and for all that lie that the devil always tells, that God doesn't love us and doesn't want us to be happy. Jesus removes the devil's only lethal weapon by dying for our sins so that we can be forgiven. But in order to be able to do that, he had to become human. Listen again to verse 14. He says, Since the children, that is the people that God calls to himself, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil. Now that's quite dense. There's a lot in there. But basically he's saying that God had to become human in order to save us. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, had to take on our human nature because without it, he couldn't have died. God can't die, he's immortal. So in order to die for us, God had to become like us. Word had to become flesh. 
And then in verse 17, we read this. He had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. Why? Let's read on. That he might make atonement for the sins of the people. For many, the the image of the high priest won't mean much. But here's the significance of it. The, the role of the high priest was to represent the people to God and God to the people. If Jesus was only fully God, but not fully human, not only would he not be able to die, he wouldn't be able to die as our representative. God's justice requires that the penalty for human sin be born in a human nature. So if human sin has to be borne by a human, either we must bear it or God must become human to bear it for us. So let's move on to the third and final section as we think about God's prognosis. As, As humans, we're plagued by a fear of death. God's remedy for our fear of death is sending his only son into the world as a human to bear the consequences of human sin in himself on our behalf, so that the, death, the devil's only lethal weapon, unforgiven sin, is rendered powerless. So now I want to ask the question, what might our lives look like if we were to follow God's prescription by repenting of our sin and putting our faith in Jesus? How might we live if our lives were no longer enslaved by the fear of death? I imagine that for many of us, even trying to imagine how our lives would look different if we weren't controlled by that nagging fear of our mortality is probably really difficult. And yet this is exactly why Jesus came, to win for us this kind of freedom to set us free. Now, I just want to clarify something before I go any, any further. When the Bible says that Jesus breaks the power of him who holds the power of death, that doesn't mean that Christians won't die. They will. Sometimes, sadly, they'll die very painful deaths, just like everyone else. What it means is that death isn't fatal. It doesn't have the last words. The resurrection of Jesus is the proof that we need that the devil has been disarmed. Yes, Jesus died. Christians aren't in the business of denying death. We don't stand looking up at the cross on Good Friday and say, he's not there. He did not die. He did die. But he isn't there any longer. That's what the word resurrection means. It means life through and out the other side of death. Jesus is risen. Now, imagine for a moment that you're playing a game of poker. And you knew you couldn't lose. That no matter how much you bet, it wouldn't cost you a penny. Would it change the way you played the game? What do you reckon? I 
bet it would. How could it not? Well, that's what Jesus has done for us by removing the fear of death. That fear of death makes us timid, it makes us dull, but its removal makes us brave and bold. John Piper writes, When the fear of death is destroyed by an act of self-sacrificing love, the bondage to boring, big-headed self-preservation is broken. We are free to love like Christ, even at the cost of our lives. And so to put our faith in Jesus as the one who has dealt with death is to know a power to risk our lives for the cause of Christ and his kingdom and love for others. The fear of death makes us cautious. It makes us likely to seek security rather than venture out where God may lead. But when we realize that Jesus came to destroy the power of death, we're given a new perspective. We're enabled to see that, yes, life is short, but eternity is long. We're offered a new equation to live by. We could spend our lives building bigger barns, storing up treasures for ourselves now, only to discover that we fail to invest in the life of the world to come. And so we're desperately poor for eternity. Jesus' victory over death gives us the courage to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and to follow him. It gives us the courage to let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. It gives us the courage to love extravagantly. And so if you want to know what a life free from the fear of death looks like, I suggest you get one of yourselves one of these and read through the Gospels. And look at the life of Jesus. Because a life free from the fear of death looks like being able to sleep in the back of a boat while a murderous storm is going out on the lake outside. A life free from the fear of death looks like healing lepers by touching them. A life free from the fear of death means not having to drop everything as soon as a message comes from Mary and Martha to say that your friend Lazarus is on his deathbed. A life free from the fear of death means giving up your rights and bending down and washing dirty feet. A life free from the fear of death looks like dying on a cross for sinners. You see, the life Jesus lived on earth among us was a life that wasn't jerked about by the fear of death. It was a life lived confident that God is the source of all life. Unless we think that this kind of living was only for Jesus because he was God's son, I'll just draw your attention to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew uh, chapters 5 to 7. The the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' manifesto for life in the kingdom of God. It starts with some of the least intuitive words of all, at least to those of us who are enslaved by the fear of death. We call those words the Beatitudes, and they give a picture of the kinds of people who prosper in God's kingdom. The poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers... And get this, the persecuted. These are not the kind of people we tend to think of as blessed. 
But why? Because our fear of death makes meekness look stupid. Jesus is called to love your enemies or store up treasures in heaven or seek first God's kingdom and God's righteousness only makes sense where the fear of death has been removed. Jesus' people are called to live as if death has been defanged. Because guess what? It has. The rationale behind the fear of death is that I have to secure my own life on my terms. But when that's removed through the death and resurrection of Jesus, then we're free to lay down our rights, our privileges for the sake of others. If Jesus secures our life, then death loses its power over us. We can live radically for God's glory, or death can speed us home to him. It's win-win. As the missionary martyr Jim Elliot put it, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Theologian Brian McLaren writes this, generosity, courage, gratitude, hope, and love fit as perfectly in this new equation of resurrection as desperation, greed, anxiety, and cynicism did in the old equation of death. Now, since death has n- never has the last word, it makes sense to do right, even if your just cause is, humanly speaking, hopeless. Jesus' resurrection guarantees that in the end, God will win. You can spend your life caring, giving, serving, and sacrificing, unconcerned about where you've succeeded or received as much as you've given or sacrificed, convinced that you will have treasures in heaven beyond this life that are greater by far than any treasure on earth in this life. Jesus came to make that kind of living possible. So I just want to ask you a final question. Do you want that kind of a life? Do you want a life free from the fear of death? Well, Jesus can help you. That's the very reason he came. It's, it's what Christians celebrate at Christmas year after year. It's not just about kids dressed up in tinsel on their hairs as angels or tea towels as shepherds. Jesus came to destroy the power of death. He came to bear our sin so that death holds no fear of judgment. He came to embolden us to die, to die to our opinions, to our preferences, to our tastes, to our own self-will, to the world, to its approval or its disapproval, and to live courageously and wholeheartedly for God. As the 17th century poet George Herbert once said, death used to be an executioner but the gospel has made him just a gardener. That's why Jesus came. That's why Christmas is such good news. What kind of life might you live if you didn't fear death? Jesus shows us the kind of life that's possible where death doesn't pull our strings 
And what's more, he dies and rises from the dead and fills us with his spirit to make it possible for you and I to live that kind of life too. And so the question I want to leave you with this morning is simply this. Are you living that kind of life? Do you know a life that is liberated from the fear of death through Jesus' death and resurrection? Are you experiencing here and now an ever-increasing measure, a life freed for self-giving love? That's why Jesus came. And so until we start living lives liberated from the fear of death, we haven't yet fully understood why Jesus came. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending your Son that we might live free from the fear of death. And yet, Lord, we know that some of us are still slaves, either in part or in whole. And so, Lord, we pray, release the chains that are still binding us here this morning. Lord, we pray for that freedom to live lives free from the fear of death, a boldness to love and to sacrifice for you and for others. A courage to do what is right, knowing that in the end, eternity is very, very long, and we will be with you forever. Amen. Amen. And so as we, we move towards the end of our, 